The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. I'm Nancy Allspaugh-Jackson. And I'm Shannon Penrod. Good morning. Thrilled to be here with you, yeah, my friend. Thrilled to be here. It's very exciting to be here. we got a big, big show. Uh-huh. Uh, a total of three guests. Uh, right. Shoehorning them in. Uh, in fact, we won't have time for news this morning. But up first, we're going to be talking with Leah Hirschfeld, uh, who's a regular here on the show, telling right. us about research. Uh, after that, we're going to have Vince Redman, another uh, regular. one of our regulars on the show, right. and he's a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's going to be joining us. And then we're going to close out the show with a, a really remarkable author. Sam Farmer is going to join us on the phone to talk about his book, A Long Walk Down a Winding Road. It is subtitled Small Steps, Challenges, and Triumphs Through an Autistic Lens. And I was talking about this on Wednesday. Woo! This is a book everybody got everybody gots to get and get yeah, it's for really gift. Good. Um, fascinating with lots of tips and really insight. Right. Into, it's like a combination of memoir, self-help. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Yes. Good yeah. description on that. Um, excited to talk to him about that. Right. So that's our show. But we're, we're really just going to jump right in. With and, Leah, right? Yep. Yeah, we've got her uh, with us on Skype. On Skype. Welcome, Leah. Thank you guys so we much did. for having me. Hi, Leah. I, Thrilled to be here. Do you have her? I don't have her. I don't have her. Okay. Uh, we might, there, I can see her, but Traven, do we have sound? She's waving to us. Maybe we need to okay. go to a break and then come right Let's back. Let's go to a break and we'll come back. Stick with us. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back. Yes, and now we have Leah. We have Leah. We have Leah, and we have sound with Leah. We right. always had Leah, but now we have the sound, so we're really... Welcome, Leah. Welcome back to Autism Live and to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm very excited. Um, I was just telling you guys that Wednesday is one of my highlights when I get to come onto the show, and um, very exciting to me that I'm a regular. So. Right. Well, you are a regular. And so for people who are just tuning in, tell them what you do for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders and what you're going to share with us. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Leah. I am a research coordinator, as you can see on the screen, um, which is also a very exciting part of the show for me. Um, and so what that means is that I'm part of our research team at corporate. So I work for Center for Autism and Related Disorders, um, and I'm part of our research and development team which in my opinion is a very, very cool team. Um, and so what the research and development team does is 
We run our own studies, so we take some questions that the research team thinks is really important um, that will help our families and the communities we serve in the answers we find. So they might be about how we can have better therapy. They might be, um, you know, how we can make sure that our behavioral therapists are coming to their sessions, um, things like that. Everything that just kind of makes sure that things are running smoothly, that the therapies we're providing are top-notch. Um, that we can prove to insurance companies and the world at large that our therapies are top-notch. Um, so that's what our research team does. And on top of that, my day is spent kind of looking at different articles that are coming out, summarizing them for our supervisors. So again, that we can make sure that that therapy we're providing is um, top-notch, uh, at the cutting edge of the research that's coming out, because there's a lot, um, and making sure just that we are providing the best care that we can for the communities that we serve. Um, and so the last time I was on the show, I was, I think, talking about a virtual reality study that just came out, and that was super cool. Again, if I say so myself. Um, and so today, what I'm really excited to talk about, and I try to find articles that are just coming out. So this was just published in this month, January 2020. Um, in a uh, journal called Autism Research. Um, and Autism Research Journal usually tries to look at some of the more cutting edge uh, technology and autism research coming out, so like virtual reality and things. Um, and generally have very, very lovely studies that have really nice quality, um, good controls, and, and generally really lovely and well-written. Um, so the article that I'm gonna talk about today is called Early Language Exposure that Supports Later Language Skills in Infants with and Without Autism. Um, and this, the team that was on this is, there's like 15 authors on this paper from different universities, which is very exciting because it means a lot of people went in to collaborate. Um, and this is my, I, I really love when there's research about language. Um, I think it's super interesting and I think it's a really lovely way that parents can potentially start with kids very young and get a lot of lovely rewards coming out of their um, effort as a parent. So generally, um, there's a lot of research with typically developing infants and early language. And there's a lot of research that shows that the more input, language input, and the earlier that infants are getting that language input, the better their outcomes will be, their language outcomes will be, and their cognitive skills will be later in life. And that's very cool for typically developing parent uh, kids, but what does that mean for kids with autism, right? Um, and I would imagine that, and sometimes we've heard that, you know, parents don't want to confuse their kids, um, especially if they have been diagnosed with autism, because they really want to make sure that that kid can say the word blue. And if they provide all of this input, are they going to confuse them? You know, should they limit their speech? What should they do? Um, so the hypothesis for the paper, the the authors were trying to answer two things. One was if there's richer caregiver speech, um, would that positively impact the language skills? And specifically, they were trying to answer this with kids who were diagnosed with autism. Um, and then one of the things that the literature also says is not only is the caregiver speech very impactful, the maternal education, so the mom's education is also something impactful. Um, and so they wanted to see was there any impact or any um, factors that would mediate that 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 um, uh, that factor that was there anything that could help mediate the maternal education um, so the participants for this study there were three cohorts which is just a lovely fancy science word for groups um, 
And so they had one that was high risk, um, high familial risk with ASD. So that means that a sibling had ASD and then the participant also had ASD. Um, they had a low familial risk without ASD group. So that means that they only had, um, the participant had typically developing siblings and the participant was also typically developing. And then they had a control group and the participant was typically developing um, and there was no first degree relatives with ASD. So that control group is really like very pure, typically developing. There's no autism in the family. Um, and then they were trying to kind of figure out the genetics there and try to control the genetics there by having those low risk familial and high risk familial groups. Um, and so what they found, well, let me take a back, uh, step back. Um, I did say that they were trying to figure out richer caregiver speech. Um, and the way that they looked at caregiver speech was twofold. One was they did something called adult word count. And you, you might also see this in other language papers called like MLU, which is mean length utterances. Um, and it's just how many words um, and sometimes they do it, I think, by like syllables and things like that. Um, but this one was how many words the adults were, were giving to the child. Um, and then they also looked at something called caregiver child interactions. And what they did with that were, were conversational turn taking. So the infant, they, every time the infant vocalized, if the parent then um, responded with some, some kind of conversation. So they looked at those two factors, the adult word count and those caregiver child interactions. Um, and what they found was that hearing more words and having more conversational turns impacted positively all the groups with later language skills. And um, I realized I didn't tell you guys what um, the later language they were doing. So um, part of the reason this study was really exciting to me as well is that it's a longitudinal study, which means that they took a very long time and watched these kids develop. So they checked out the kids at nine months, at 15 months, and then a year later. So this is like a good two years of research here that they're looking at this data. Um, so really lovely long term to kind of see what the effects are. So um, they looked at, again, these child word, sorry, adult word utterances and the child caregiver interactions. And the way that they measured them, again, very, very cool, was that they had an embedded vocalization. Um, uh, I don't um embedded vocalization uh, recording device on the infant's clothes. And they instructed the families to keep that on for 16 hours. Um, and that would catch all of the words and all of the utterances from everyone that was communicating with this child. Um, and they threw out anything that was less than eight hours of recording, and they kept everything between eight and 16 hours of recording. Um, and so again, looking at those child caregiver interactions and those adult word utterances, they found that over time, all the groups benefited from more conversational turns and from more um, adult word utterances to the child, and that that was correlated positively to better language skills later in life. So that's awesome, right? So the takeaway here is all kids, regardless of if you have a diagnosis of ASD or if you, if you don't, all of those kids are going to do better later in life with having more language input and having those conversational turn takings. Um, they also found that 
And this is pretty common with this research that that um, maternal education, so the higher education of the mother, also led to um, greater uh, language skills in the children. However, and this is really cool, caregiver speech also helped mitigate that. So it also helped make it so that the maternal education was not as big of a factor um, in the later child language skills. So again, increasing the the language that your child is hearing and making sure you're having those conversational turn takings is super important. Um, and that was in and of itself, that's very cool, right? We've seen this with typically developing children, but we haven't seen it as much with kids with, with ASD. And you could understand how this is a question parents and clinicians might be asking. Um, but that's not it. That's not all of the all of their findings. Um, I loved this study. I thought but it was wait, really cool. there's more. <laughs> wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is why Wednesdays, when I get to come on the show and just like talk about things I love, I get very excited. Um, so one of the other really cool things that they found, or interesting, um, is that typically developing kids experienced a shift at nine and fifteen months, and so what you saw was at nine months. The kids were having a lot of adult utterances and not so many conversational turn-taking, which makes sense. At nine months, these kids are not um, necessarily making as much noise as at 15 months or a year later. And those child and caregiver interactions were specifically when the baby vocalized and then the parent responded, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, what they found was that at nine months, you were seeing a lot more adult interactions or utterances, and then at 15 months, that switched for the typically developing kids. So you saw a decrease in the adult word interactions, and you saw an increase in the the turn the conversational turn taking. Okay, that's cool. What about the kids with the ASD, right? So what we saw was with the I say we as if I did the study. I didn't. <laughs> what the researchers saw was that um, the infants diagnosed with ASD saw the same decrease. So they also saw a decrease in adult utterances to them between 9 and 15 months, but they didn't see the increase in the turn-taking, the, the conversational turn-taking. So the authors talk about that as well, that that might correlate to conversational difficulties, social communication difficulties that you see in individuals diagnosed with autism. Um, they also saw thought that that there might be something going on with the repetitive behaviors, and that might also be affecting these conversational turn-taking um, interactions that you're seeing with typically developing kids and not with the kids with autism. Um, so I thought that was super interesting to kind of think about as a parent, making sure that even though your child might not be hitting those milestones at 15 months, um, because they, you know, we, we do see those delays with children with autism, to keep that input, to keep those conversational turn-takings um, that might not be vocal at that point. Maybe your kiddo looks to the right and you want to be like, that's great, let's talk about that weird tree that you just saw and just kind of talk at them perchance. Um, and that that in interactions are still super important to make sure you're still doing those. Um, and every time I come onto the show, I do try to talk about the downfalls of the research. So every single paper, if you scroll to the very end, after the, the discussion section, um, should have kind of a disclaimer that kind of explains, you know, this is what, even though our study is really, really cool and we tried to make it as great as we could, we're all human, research is not perfect, and these are the limitations. Um, so... This also had limitations, and they took, the researchers do a lovely job, again, of talking about those limitations. 
One of them being that most of our participants were high SES is something you'll see in research, and that stands for socioeconomic status. So that means that these families generally had a higher income, a fairly high income. Um, so they do talk about making sure that you're doing research with all socioeconomic status, you know, folks in a lower bracket and a higher bracket. Um, the researchers also talk about how they only used families that fit into Western culture and that that might not apply. Um, so the study might not be able to be replicated with folks from a different culture. Um, and they also talk about their exclusion criteria. So their exclusion criteria was great in part because it does get you a lot of control with the genetics. Um, but it also means, like I said, all the, the cohorts, all the groups had to have a sibling. And the first two with the high familial risk had to either have a sibling that had ASD or didn't have ASD. And, and so you always had to have a participant who had a sibling. Um, and that really limits your options of participants, right? You can necessarily just have your firstborn who want an only child um, in the study. So super interesting. Again, I think they did a great job really laying out issues that they saw that could affect the results that they're seeing, that the study does still need rep be being able to be replicated. Um, but very interesting. And like I said, I love looking at language papers because I think it's something that all parents can kind of look, remind themselves to do, um, to be really cognizant of the words that you're giving to your child. And those conversational turn-takings, even if your kiddo is being diagnosed with autism and doesn't necessarily have the ability to vocalize as much as a typically developing kiddo, still making sure that you're providing high quality input, that you're providing those words, that you're providing those turn takings, whatever it looks like, right? So even if you're talking at your kid because they're nine months or 15 months, um, you're still providing something for them and it really might, um, and there seems to be a fair amount of research to imply that there is, a lot of benefit later on in life by just providing those words and describing everything around your kid and it you know explaining yeah that's a green grass and that's a brown tree and hey that's a dog yeah that's what you're seeing like that has a wet nose like i don't know <laughs> um but so very very cool study lovely lovely work from this group who really i think did a nice job trying to control as much as they could and really explaining the, the downfalls, again, with the SES and having to make sure you had a sibling with the participants. But um, overall, super cool takeaways um, and hopefully good, you know, ROI for your investment from a parent parent's perspective. Right. So my takeaway, and you remember seeing the video that was viral a couple months ago with the great dad that he's sitting there on the couch with his very small baby. Yes. And the baby is like, do do uh -huh. And the dad goes, I know. I thought he was out over the line too. And right. the baby goes, and the dad goes, I don't know. Your mom's going to be upset about that. And it's he's having this fake interaction right. with his child. And everybody watched it and everybody said, what a great dad. Right. But that we really need to up our game as autism and parents and be doing that with our kids at whatever level that they're right. at. Lots and, of talking with uh, our kids. You know, when they're early, early young kids, mm -hmm. just be verbalizing, keep a right. running monologue going, but have a, di a fake dialogue too that it, it has a benefit. Right, right. That's my takeaway as well. Is that, Let's are we in the, we're in the neighborhood? You guys are spot on. I don't even 
don't even okay. know why I show up. You guys are perfect. <laughs> At the end, I'm always nodding my head aggressively when you guys talk. Yeah, perfect. Uh, well, because yeah. we, we can't decipher the research. That's why you're here. Uh, we might have had a different takeaway. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's really important information. And I don't know we would if we would have had it otherwise. So thank you so much. I don't know if you're back with us next month. I think Karen's back with us next month. But then hopefully we'll see you again the month after. Yeah, you guys can't get rid of me, so I'm, I'm I hope here that's as much true. as I as I'm allowed to be. Um, well, yeah, we love your enthusiasm. Thank you, Leah, and we love your beautiful brain. So thank you so <laughs> thank much. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a good one. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, wonderful, Leah Hirschfeld from uh, research, <laughs> research and development. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Research and development department. So wonderful that she was here, and what an uplifting message. I don't know about you, Nancy, and maybe this is something we want to talk about with Vince, but I, you know, people have their kids develop at all different ways and times, but my kid was very interactive, and then he stopped being interactive, and I'm pushy, and I was still interacting for a while, but i got to be honest. I, like, it, it was like he, he wasn't responding, and that right. bummed me out, and so I didn't do it as much. I just didn't, and I think that that's a normal reaction. I do too. But if I was somebody, if I had somebody there saying, "You can't do that. Don't stop. You got to get in there and keep, keep going, keep the conversation going," and the evidence of that was that you know I was always the the really good aunt, mm -hmm. and I was always good with everybody's kids, and I and I tell this story to kids always, this Wally the Worm story. And I would always tell it to other kids, and I'd try to tell it to Jem, and he had no time for it. Right. And they'll always repeat it. After I do it once, I say, let's do it again, and you tell part of the story. And by the third time, they're telling the story. And I could never get Jem to do that. And so I stopped telling it to him, mm. right? And he would only hear it when I was telling it to other kids. Right. And I remember the day, and I remember the parking lot of the thing that I was, the store that I was pulling into, and he was sort of babbling in the back, but he was probably four and a half. Um, but getting that language back and, and I couldn't hear or understand what he was saying. And then I heard the one phrase from the story that the kids repeat, which is what happened. And then I went back to reading my book and chewing my gum and he was saying it in the back seat and I realized he was listening and I should have been telling him that story every day, like I would anybody else's. Right. Kid. So anyway, now we all know, uh, talk, talk, talk. How important it is. Yeah. Them. Yeah. All right, uh, so we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with Vince Redmond, licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, and we're going to talk with Vince maybe about some of these things and others. Stick with us. Stick with us. Neurodiversity in parents. One big happy family? We hope so. Anyway, what is neurodiversity? Everybody's talking a lot about it these days. Neurodiversity means that there's a view that people with autism just have a different way of being and they should be honored for that. And then parents oftentimes look at autism as a disability or a disorder and that can create some conflict. We sometimes throw up our hands, neurodiversity or neurodiversity. There can actually be some issues around this that we need to think about together. First of all, neurodiversity could be positive because it can create more of a kind of a sense of acceptance in society. Yes, these people have autism, they're just different. 
It could possibly help create a sense of self-esteem that's improved in people with autism. They just realize, okay, I'm not damaged, I'm not bad, whatever, I'm just different. So that could be useful. Um, on the downside, it could be an excuse to not give services to people with autism, to not have much empathy for their parents, and to not look at ways that they can be helped. And many people that have autism, they do very well. Other people do not do well at all. They can't access services. They cannot enjoy their life. They're in pain. So it is important that we understand it's not just one issue. So how do we solve this when we look at neurodiversity? I think we have to look at it this way. It's kind of like when you have that big family dinner at Thanksgiving and everybody's around the table. You got your uncle, your aunt, your kids, your parents. Everyone has an opinion. It doesn't necessarily mesh. And I think the way that we need to think about this is we need to respect each other's opinion because actually we need each other. We need to be allies on this. The outside world is a big place for people with autism spectrum disorders and their families. We have to remember we're one big, happy, dysfunctional family and we need to behave that way. We should respect each other, listen to each other, and we will all have a great time when it comes time to get together and celebrate the lives of people with autism. Talking uh, about the study that we just went over with Leah. Yes. Uh, so we're welcoming Vince Redman uh, back to the show. Vince, who we adore. Vince is a licensed marriage and family therapist, Vince Redman. Um, but he also was uh, a behavioral therapist for many, many years. He's worked with a wide variety of individuals from young kiddos. You've seen him. He's featured in uh, the, the film Recovered. Uh, the, is it The Journey Back Through Autism or... There's a subtitle journey for it. Through autism and and back. Beyond, back. The journey through autism and back. There we go. I had some of the words right, but not in the right order. Um, but uh, he's featured as a very young therapist uh -huh. in in that film, um, and then you get to see him work, working with a young woman over the years. It's really fun. If you watch the show, I, I well, of course, you know, if you're at all watching the show, I encourage you to to watch. Uh, recovered, but to see Vince in it is a special treat because you go, oh my goodness, there's Vince. What were you, 19 in the earliest part of it then? <laughs> it seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah, you were you were young in, and then and then to get to see you interact um, with with that particular client when she's a teenager, it's very moving. I just let me tell you, it's a five hanky affair. Uh, but always a thrill to have Vince here with us. He is now the director of the Family Services Department at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. And Vince is the person that we all run to. Um, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, we all run to Vince because um, he's got big shoulders uh, that we all run to and we send our families to them. So welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back, Nancy. It's good to see you. Thank you, Vince. Good to see you. Hail, hail, the, the gang's all here, right? right? So the gang's back together. Let's play. That's right. <laughs> and um, so one of the things that we were thinking of talking about with Vince today is disappointment. Mm -hmm. um, You've gotten a lot of feedback this week from parents who yeah, are we've, dealing with disappointment, right? We've had a lot of parents writing in to us and saying, uh, you know, the one, the one mom who wrote in and said, you know, that the child had just been diagnosed and that dad is just refusing to accept the diagnosis He's disappointed in the diagnosis. I think we can all relate to that. Right. But mom's disappointed in dad because he can't get it together and, I, right. and, and get on the same page with right. her. And I think a lot of 
um, spouses, because a lot of times it's the mom saying that to the dad, but sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes it's the dads is having to say to the mom, hey, I know you're having feelings about this, but we got we, we got to move in we a direction. We got work to do. There's work, yes. So maybe, and but then we've had other people writing in about disappointment because their kids are in that transitional age, like 11 to 12, and they're seeing that the other kids... Uh, maybe the other kids at the center or the other kids at school are shooting ahead and their kid isn't. And there's a lot of disappointment about that and a lot of self-reflection. One mom who said to me, I just don't know what I did wrong. And that broke my heart, Vince. So where do you want to start? Well, let's start with that one. I mean, I think the first thing that, that we, we want to discuss with any parent is you've never done anything wrong. You know that that has to do with when you're when you're when you're engaged in a, in treatment and you're engaged in you know medical appointments and doing everything you can for your child, you know to make sure that they have the platform to be able to progress. That's that's what we're doing. That's what you're um, uh, uh, meant to do. That's the platform, the foundation to you know to progress. Now. As we know, there's no guarantee where that progress is going to land. Is it going to land real high, real low? But the progress, right? And this is why we set individual goals for each individual child, each individual family, and work with those dynamics to get the best results we can for each individual you know, uh, patient or each individual child. But when it comes to feeling that there's something that we did wrong, that's sometimes just our interpersonal feeling that we need to do more. We need to do, you know, it's because the progress is, isn't where we thought it might be. It's because I'm doing something wrong. And that's not the case. A lot of times it's, you know, different factors, different variables. I mean, we could sit here for days and have a whole show just on the amount of variables that get played into children's progress. But Rarely is it that anyone was doing anything wrong. And I think it's something we want to, you know, talk about. Talk to, you know, I'm, I'm very big on don't hold that in. Don't hold that fear or that feeling in. Talk to someone about it. Either talk to a staff or a, a spouse or loved one about it. Maybe set some time aside to talk to your supervisor about it. Or if you feel it's that overwhelming, definitely set up a time to talk with a mental health specialist about it so that you feel better about the efforts and the engagement and all the progress that you have made and not so um, uh, fearful that you did something wrong. Yeah. yeah, don't you think comparison is just a natural thing that parents do? Yeah, it's, it, and that's every, that's in all of us, right? It's all of us. Anytime our child um, fails at something or doesn't succeed at something, we feel like we didn't do enough or we might have missed something or maybe we should have given a little bit more effort here or there or what have you. But that's just us as parents, just heart and soul, mind and body, want our children to be successful with everything they do. There's one mom that I know that publicly re refers to this phenomenon of kids getting better. She says, you know, there are families who win the autism lottery. Right. That they do all the right things and they win the autism lottery and their kid is fine. And 
you know, and as much as I think we are all thrilled that that is the circumstance for more and more kids, it does make it harder for the families who don't win the autism lottery, but who put in all the work, mm -hmm. who did all the time, um, but for whatever reasons did not get that same amount of progress, which, you know, everybody continues to do research on why that is. Right. Um, and, and I think we find more and more that there are contributing factors to it. Um, but it's still very hard to be the person who didn't win the lottery. Um, and we get more and more parents, and I think as insurance covers older kids, we mm -hmm. get more and more parents that go, you know, it used to be that we, and we still get the parents who go, I missed the boat. Uh -huh. I, you know, you started your kid at three and I, my kid is 15 has never right. had ABA. Right. And telling them to forgive themselves because yeah. they didn't have access to it, didn't know about it, whatever. Right. Like we all have to be forgiving of, you know, the water that's, but it's hard. Right. It's very hard. It's hard when it's the, your kid's progress. Right. I mean, I know I beat myself up for not getting Wyatt into ABA earlier. You know, that but was a you did thing. everything under I, the sun. We did. And when I look back, I have to say, we did everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but it's, but, you know, those feelings, though, Vince, are really hard to deal with. And, and I love that you're saying to people, find somebody to talk about it, even if it's that it's a professional to talk about it, because you got to have some place to go with those yeah. feelings, yeah. right? You can't, you can't hold that. Yeah. And, like, and what Nancy just said, I thought was great, is look back evaluate the progress, evaluate the good, evaluate the successes, evaluate everything that has changed for the positive along this journey, right? Oh, Going back to our journey through autism, because that is reinforcing. That is something oh, that okay. we need to always remember, right? And, and this is one of the, sometimes the, the negative byproduct of of ABA treatment, right? We go to the meetings, we, you know, every session's about increasing a deficit, making, you know, or decreasing an excessive behavior. And we're focusing on all the gaps. We're focusing on all the excesses. We have to make sure that's balanced with also all the stuff that we've already accomplished, already maintenance, already mastered, already, um, you know, we're successful with. And that's, and if the parents, if any, any parent is feeling overwhelmed and not feeling that, then we, we as the professionals, need to do more of that. We need to do more of reflecting back on the successes just as much as the needs that are still to come. But it is key for the parent to voice that feeling yes. so that they can yeah. get the help and support that they need. So now, Vince, uh, switching back to the other one, talking about the newly when somebody's newly diagnosed and the disappointment that they feel... And, and that one case of the mom saying, dad is, is just like, no, that's not, that's not what's happening. So dad's disappointed, mom's disappointed, mom's extra disappointed in dad that he's, he's not handling it. He's not handling it the way she feels that it needs to be handled. And that's really typical, isn't it? Sure. Were you and Reed on the same page, like right out the jump? Or Pretty much, really? Yeah. yeah. Like I think that's remarkable. Right. Jim, Jim was like, he's fine. I don't know what right. you're talking about. Right. Um, and uh, you know, and I was like, no, I don't think he is. And and even on the day that he was diagnosed, I think I think it took Jim a good six months before he was like, okay, now I understand what you're talking about and what we're facing. But we were six months in. Uh huh. Uh, and and I I would love to say that I was kind and gentle and and nice with my husband. That would be a, a lot. <laughs> it 
let us let us be honest about that, right? right? I love when Holly Robinson Pete said that she said to Rodney, "You better get on Autism Avenue with me, <sighs> or you're going to be on some other avenue without, without us." Me, right. And I was like, "Oh, I can relate to that." Uh, anyway, uh, Vince, what what do you want to say to these parents? That this is the natural. Oh, process we don't have Vince. Vince, we don't have your sound. I'm still here. Hello? Traven, are we having an issue? Do I need to call him? We were all poised, right? Now we've got him back. I we think. do? We, have, we got Vince? Vince? Hello? Hello? Oh, we just got him on your mic, Traven. Uh, we are going to take a break while we figure this out because we want you guys to hear Vince's words of wisdom. Stick with us. We're back. We're back. And we, we now have Vince. Vince. We have sound. So we were asking what Vince would say to these parents with a newly diagnosed dad doesn't, uh, you know, he's in denial. Yeah, and he's moms, falling behind. Mom's disappointed that her child has, uh, you know, an autism diagnosis, but she's more disappointed that dad is in denial. Right. So, Do you have advice for that couple, Vince? What would you say to this couple? They're grieving, right? I think you both would agree. They're grieving, and that's a, the, one of the first stages of grief is denial. So it's appropriate. It's not anything that the father's doing inappropriate or the mother's doing inappropriately. This is a normal stage of grieving. You're in denial that your child has a disability. So like we would do with any other death or any other, um, you know, a, a loss where grief takes over our presence, we need to give them time to process. We need to give them a little bit of education, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of information, but not too much. If we overflow it, then it's going to be a complete shutdown. And I think we've seen that with a lot of families. So what we want to do is we want to talk to the individual. We want to talk with whichever parent it is and talk to them about what are their expectations? What are they seeing? What is it that they see? What are their fears? What are their anxieties? And really work with that until we get to a stage of acceptance. I think it's very critical, though, that we don't overwhelm in the beginning and really work with them in a very empathetic, you know, and systematic way. Because just like uh, any of us, we grieve in different ways, right? There's five steps of grief, but they don't always go linear and always go in the same you know, the same order. Sometimes we start with denial. Sometimes we start with anger. Sometimes we start with the depression. It, it can vary in various stages. So getting that relationship, having that relationship with the parent, sitting down and getting their point of view, really understanding the grief, the fear, the expectations that they're feeling, that will get us a lot further than if we just flood the families with information. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it totally sense. does. Yeah. I think I'm guilty of that sometimes. You know, that guilty of what? Uh, yeah. Overflowing a, a new parent and uh -huh. saying, you know, like, here are all the things you got to do. Right. And they're like, right. ah. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I love, you know, saying that it's appropriate for this dad to feel this way. And I think that those of us, if you're the partner in the relationship that's like, I, I can't stand to be in grief. Uh, or fear because I become paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And so my thing that I've learned how to cope for me is to do something. Mm -hmm. And my mother always say, would you would say, do something even if it's wrong. Right. Right? That was her motto. And so I'm like, oh, I'm feeling this way. I need to do something. And and so I struggle with when people are, are feeling a way and not do I'm like, well, just get up and do something. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a mm -hmm. pain in the butt about mm -hmm. that. 
And, um, and so, but allowing the other person to have their process and not putting a stamp on it going, you're wrong, you're not moving fast enough, you're being, you know, a lot of times that person can be labeled as weak because they're in denial. But I love you saying, Vince, that it's, it's normal, it's, everybody's going to go through it and to let them have some room to feel mm -hmm. what they're feeling. I love that. Yeah. Have some patience. Because the one thing that's going to happen is if we push too hard, they're going to shut down. Yeah. And now we've lost them. Yeah. And now that we did, there's no buy-in. There's, there's, we just solidified that they're going to stand behind their decision. And that's just the way it's going to be. Right. Yeah. And right or wrong. Right. And, and that's not, you know, where we want to put any parent. We don't want that pressure or anxiety on them too. The quicker we can normalize that, 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 you know, the way you're feeling right now is, is okay. Mm -hmm. it's, there's nothing wrong with it. I think let's everybody talk, needs let's to talk do about that. it. Yeah. You know, what, what are, what are some of your concerns? You know, is there any questions? What do you, you know, fear? Is there anything you would like to know about the treatment? How can we help you? You know, as we always said, you know, our treat, you know, I can speak for us, our treatment's a full family model. It's not just about the child or the patient, right? We work with the family. We talk about their dynamics, their interactions, their strengths, weaknesses, reinforcements, and so forth. Right. And I think when we approach it that way, that this is, we're here to care for all of you, there's there's a sense of relief with that. Yeah, absolutely. So Vince, uh, give us a quick uh, one minute explanation about the Family Services Department and how people can interact if they want to. Sure. Um, Basically, with the Family Services Department here at CART is we're here to support um, the family with any questions or, or concerns that they might have, any, um, you know, uh, 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 support that they might need, resources they might want to get a hold of, either inside the, you know, our company, outside the company, and also connecting them with, um, you know, the right resources that might help them right in the moment or maybe down the future, like you were saying, transitional periods, conservatorships, things that might be coming up. So if they need have any questions, grievances, uh, compliments, or re, you know things that they would like to talk about, they can reach me at v.redmond, R-E-D-M-O-N-D, at centerforautism.com. Yeah. You're a gift okay, to great us, Vince. Vince. We Thank so you. We encourage it. everybody, if they have some feelings they want to talk about and get support to contact Vince. He's a great resource. Oh, there you go. Thank you so much, okay, Thank you, Vince. Thanks, See you ladies. next month. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, so that was the great Vince Redmond. Right. We're going to take a take quick a break. break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to have author Sam so, Farmer. Yeah. What a, a great name. A Long Walk Down a Winding Road. What a great title for a book. And, boy, I, I'm, you can see I've got yeah. all these tabs here. I'm, I'm loving I Love read it last it night. It's a great read. It's a, you know, it's a quick read, which is, is good, and he intentionally did that. So we'll talk to yeah. him about that. Yeah, so right after this, stick with us. We are back, and as promised, we have author Sam Farmer. He wrote the book, A Long Walk Down a Winding Road, and uh, Small Steps, Challenges, and Triumph Through an Autistic Lens. Um, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Sam, the book is great. I read it last night, and um, it is a kind of book that you can read in one reading, which mm -hmm. I love. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of intentionally did that, didn't you? Uh, my sole intent, thank you, with this book was 
for people to read it, however long it would take to read it, not that I expected it to be read more than once, but just to write it so that people reading it could benefit, hopefully, from what I had to say. It's kind of a, co a combination of self-help and memoir, wouldn't you say? Exactly. It was exactly with that intent that I wrote the book, correct? Well, I, yeah. I really loved it, too. And I was saying uh, in an earlier show when we were talking about you being on that I, I think it's the kind of book, it's a great gift book because it's a great gift for any autism parent that you have to hear, again, from that lens of someone, as you say, that has an autistic profile. I love how you refer to yourself that way. But I also, you know, I have a teenage son, and I'm excited to give this to him because I've, I feel like uh, it's kind of a roadmap for him, some things to consider. I, I found myself thinking about, you remember years ago in the 80s when they had that little Life's Little Instruction book? Uh -huh. And it was little one-page things, and it was like, you know, do this, and, and, and these are the keys to success. And I feel like you did that for anybody who's on the spectrum. Well, thank you very much. I did that as best I could. Well, it's really exciting. So for, for those who haven't read it, um, can you give them just a little bit of a history about how you came to your diagnosis? So I think of my life as kind of generally being in three phases. Uh, phase one started really when I was just shy of three years old. That's when my mother and I, with the help of a learning specialist, discovered that I had a learning disability. It was a learning disability in auditory perception. And for all those years, from being just shy of age three up to age 40, that's all that I ever thought of my profile, um, so to speak. Then, to make a long story short, for reasons that I'll spare people of, unless you want to know more details, just let me know. Um, I underwent a neuropsychological evaluation at the age of 40, one conclusion of which was that I had an Asperger's profile. And so I equate that event with the beginning of phase two of my life which I call the enlightened phase. Partially informed was partial because I knew of my learning disability, but not of my autism spectrum profile. And now that I had that missing puzzle piece at age 40, I call that enlightened because in hindsight, I see that as the beginning of me finally having a more complete picture of who I was. And then about three and a half years ago almost, my mother passed away. And for reasons that I can't really properly explain, um, I felt compelled in the midst of her loss um, or my loss that um, that I should acknowledge all the work that she did to help other people where she was a social worker, a marital and family therapist. She worked in mental health centers and in school districts helping people. 
I wanted to honor her legacy of helping others by trying to help people myself and in doing so to honor her legacy. And I call that in the book phase three, which is the paying it forward phase. I couldn't pay her back at that point because she had passed on. So instead I chose to pay it forward. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Which is the book and all my other blogs and articles, presentations, videos, all of which can be accessed at samfarmerauthor.com. They're all part of what I call my paying it forward mission Mm -hmm. um, in line with the phase I'm currently in, phase three of my life, the paying it forward phase. Okay. And you say that your diagnosis was actually a bit of a relief for you, right? Yes and no. Um, Initially, it was a real shocker. It blindsided me and frustrated and confused me, in part because I had known people in my life who were autistic or who had Asperger's, and I admittedly had a hard time reconciling what I knew about them with what I had just found out about myself. But in relatively short time, I got past that, And I started to try to extract some good out of the diagnosis because at heart, I'm an optimist. And um, yeah, a bunch of uh, questions, longstanding questions for which I could never find satisfactory answers finally were able to be answered. And it... um, And it uh, encouraged me to get help. And the help that I received as a result of that diagnosis strengthened me, made me smarter. It led to my various writings. It led to the book and to all the doors that writing this book has opened. And so ultimately, yes, I would even go so far as to call it a blessing perhaps counterintuitively. Uh, Not everybody is going to think of an autism spectrum diagnosis as a blessing, but I'm fortunate to have been able to adopt that outlook Mm -hmm. on the diagnosis. Right. I love the way you formatted this, that you you have different chapters that address different issues of a life. I mean, there's a whole chapter about employment Mm -hmm. and some of the issues that you... You know, and you you tell us sort of the story in the beginning, and then you take issue by issue and sort of chunk it and and give advice um, that I think is invaluable for any teenager, but especially if you have a kiddo on the spectrum, uh, amazing. Um, But I I was so moved in the book, Sam, by how you talk about the the change that fatherhood made in you and the things that it made you look at. Mm -hmm. And in particular, as a parent, of a kiddo on the spectrum, there are several times in the book where you bring up this thing that you call tuning out. And I think that every autism parent should read what you have to say about that. Can you just briefly describe for them what you mean by, by tuning out? 
Well, by tuning out, it kind of happens out of the blue for no apparent reason. I'll just stop being aware of what's being said, what's going on in my surroundings. This will happen often in long meetings that sometimes drag along, that my mind will drift. It'll drift to something else that's been on my mind. Um, just a, a general loss of awareness of one's surroundings. And then for whatever random period of time, without necessarily having to be prompted, I'll snap out of it and I'll come back to awareness. And it's just one of those things that happen um, that, uh, that I have to contend with. Um, and uh, I'm fortunate that, uh, that the consequences of the tuning out haven't really been that acute. Um, I'm fortunate for that, but it is what it is. And, and, and I try to be very candid in the book. Yeah. I try to express what my vulnerabilities are. Um, a very profound thing was said in the wake of this Kobe Bryant tragedy. I heard it on CNN yesterday that to show vulnerability is actually, in a way, to show strength. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I try to convey that attitude, that mindset in this book, and that's but one example of how I do that. Well, I particularly appreciate it because I think we all tune out. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of tuning out. Like, I, if I'm in a long meeting, I'm going to tune out, right. too. And I right. appreciate your description of it. But, but I think what I read in here was... Uh, and even you describe here, because you say the realist in me tells me that this challenge, this idea of not tuning out, is probably one of those that can be diminished only to a limited extent, right? So that there is this awareness of the fact that, you know, maybe you can lessen it, but you're never going to get rid of it. But I, but I, what I read, uh, what I got from the book is that it's not entirely a choice. Mm -hmm. And that maybe those, of us, those of us who <clears throat> tune out... Uh, you know, I can say to myself, you know, focus, and I'm able to refocus. And so my assumption as a parent is that my son can do that too. Mm -hmm. And your book reminded me that it isn't always a choice right. for people. Right. That's a great gift to give a parent. Correct. Absolutely. There are things that those of us on the spectrum will do that admittedly are beyond our control. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's true to varying extents of all of us. Absolutely. There are things that we all do that are beyond our control. So what do we do? We control what we're able to, and we kind of accept, ideally, we come to an acceptance of what we cannot control and say, look, this is part of being human. It's intrinsic to the human experience. Let's we're better off accepting it than beating ourselves up over it. I talk a lot about uh, the connection between acceptance and uh, 
learning how to love yourself, of building self-esteem. And this is one example where acceptance helps in terms of that, in, in terms of the view that you have of yourself and admitting to yourself that, look, I'm human. You win some, you lose some. Some things you can control, other things you can't. That's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you actually have a chapter two on bullying yeah. and yes. your experience with that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, wow, as far as bullying goes, um, loaded subject, a number of key points, um, one of which is is that there are a couple of things that you can digest mentally, I feel, that can help you to rise above bullying. One of which is, is to realize um, that bullies themselves are human, um, that they themselves might have been bullied at some point in their lives, um, that they also need help. And all of this is easier said than done. But if you're able to have that wisdom of who the bully is, of knowing how he or she operates, um, that you can use that to fortify your defenses for when and if you and the bully cross paths. You're better off having that understanding than if you don't. Number two, as we've seen, um, certainly in recent years, um, in terms of all the divisiveness in our politics, uh, the hate that we've seen in society, uh, the us versus them tribalism, as I refer to it somewhere in the book, Mm -hmm. is that there's a darker side to humanity and to human nature that we need to acknowledge. I celebrate and champion all the efforts that are going on out there to try to combat bullying and to put a stop to it. But realistically, granted, human nature Um, not easy for me to say this, but I fear that bullying is here to stay. And if it is here to stay, it's of paramount importance that we try to rise above it. Mm -hmm. And having that knowledge of how people can be and that we have people in positions of power who don't always behave the way they should who themselves, regrettably, are capable of bullying, who are doing role modeling in all the wrong ways, that using that knowledge of how people are and how people have conducted themselves, again, it's a way to fortify your defenses, to actually see bullying coming your way even if it doesn't, and wouldn't it be great if it never has to again, Mm -hmm. that if you see it coming, you can prepare yourself accordingly, that when and if it does happen, you're ready for it, 
and you're mentally prepared and you can rise above it. Mm -hmm. Those are among a few of, of the key points I make of how you can rise above bullying. And of course, as I often say in the book, the critical importance of getting help, of finding someone to talk to, uh, and that's help not just for the victims, but for the bullies themselves. Yeah. Um, I'd argue on both ends, help is needed. And then if, if it happens, we, we carve out a better world for all of us. Well, it is a lovely book. I love uh, this, you know, the, the cover, because I think mm -hmm. it, it is, it's a, it's a road map, uh, you know, through the forest and the trees, to, you know, to get to the place of that self-acceptance self that you were talking about, and that self-love, um, great read for a parent to get insight into what it, you know, what it is like inside the brain of someone who has an autistic profile, and great book to give our teens to help them teens and adults to, you know, to find a way through. So, yeah, and to build self-esteem. Exactly. Sam, thank you so much for being with us and for writing this book. Uh, remind us again where we can go to get the book. Uh, you can go to Amazon, um, do a search for a long walk down a winding road. But my recommendation is simply to go to www.samfarmerauthor.com. On that website, there's a section where the book can be ordered. You click on a button, it takes you right to the book page in Amazon where it can be ordered either as a paperback or as an ebook for Kindle. Love it. Um, and in addition, like I said earlier on that site, links to blogs, to articles, links to my Facebook page, a contact page that I encourage everybody to use. If you want to get in touch with me directly with any comments, any questions, and an area where you can specify your name and your email address to join the mailing list for my newsletter where when I've published a new article or I've done a new video or I want to announce when and where there's a book event, everybody on my mailing list gets newsletters with all of that information on new content, events, etc. Great. Love it. All Great, at samfarmerauthor.com. Samfarmerauthor.com. Thank you for joining us today and good luck to you. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank yeah. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. What a lovely gentleman. Yes. And what a lovely book. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, there were so many wonderful things. I even love, you know, there's a whole section where it's, if you're new on the job, here mm -hmm. are some things to do to make it easier for you and, and to help the people that you're working with. I love that there was a section first about, you know, here are the things that identify if you're in the right job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I loved that. Right. I was like, oh, look, I'm I'm in the right job. Right. Because right. these things, and I could, you know, there was a whole section about when you're in the wrong job. Right. It was a whole thing about if you find yourself looking at the clock uh -huh. and wondering when is it over, then you're probably you're in the not, wrong job. You're not, right. probably not in the right job, and you should leave that job sooner as opposed to later. What great life right. lessons. Good life lessons in the book. Yeah. Lots of them, too. Wonderful. You'll enjoy it. And yeah. it's, as you said, it's a fast read. Really. Right 
exciting. I'm glad that he's here. Okay, we're out okay. of time, but I want to tell next people week. what's happening next week yeah. on the show. Um, we, I can tell you that on Monday we are having Tom Island, uh, who is a wonderful self-advocate, and he's been doing a lot of things. He's the gentleman who um, he co-authored with his mother uh, a wonderful workbook called Come to Life. But then he went and became the first Toastmaster who is certified that's on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. Amazing. He's going to be with us on Monday. On Tuesday, we have a best of. On Wednesday, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we have Dr. Doreen Grampy Schaefer ask Dr. Doreen. On Thursday, we are going to have the amazing Amy Sackwriter is going to be with us. She's our autism expert um, that will be with us on Thursday, and she's incredible. On Friday, we have Eric Asher. Eric Asher is coming to us from Respect, Ability, and we're going to wade into the politics and talk about which, uh, which uh, of, the, of the different candidates and what their beliefs are about autism mm -hmm. and what their policies are about oh, autism. Oh, how I'm interesting. Really I'm really looking forward to that. For us to like wade in okay, with them. Okay, great. Uh, you know, we're, we're putting it out there to candidates that if they want to be on the show and talk about autism, we're not interested in talking about everything else. Right. But if they want to come on and talk about autism, we especially, I got to say, we would like for Andrew Yang to come on and talk yeah. about um, because he's an autism dad, right? But we'd like to hear from r literally all of the candidates. Right. I'm putting it out there. We're we're not, you know, if they are a candidate that's actually running and that has following, you are welcome to come on here. We'll make time for Great. you to talk about your autism policies. Great. So there you Let's have it. If you've got a candidate that you love, reach out to them. And I mean, we are too, but reach out to them and say, I'd love to see you on Autism mm -hmm. Live. All right. So that's what's happening next All right. week. Until then, give your kid a hug and from me. And yourselves a hug from me. Bye-bye for bye -bye. now. Bye-bye.